Hello, everyone. It is Saturday, September 12th, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker, the style editor of Airmail. And I am Michael Haney, one of the deputy editors of Airmail. Welcome to the show. This is our very first episode of Morning Meeting, and I think the very best thing about this, Michael, is that you and I are in the same room. We're in the same room. We're in the Airmail World headquarters over on 9th Street in Greenwich Village. And as I was walking over here today from my trailer when I was waiting to be prepped. AKA his apartment. It occurred to me, I think, like, it is almost six months to the day that we walked out of the office sort of thinking, like many people, it'll just be a slight break. And instead it became this kind of Rip Van Winkle experience for all of us here in the city. But we're back. I'm looking at Alex, who is, he just pointed at me. He's been holding down the fort here as well. One of, one of the great assistants and writers here. So it's great to be back. And, and to all of you who, who have missed it, here we are. And it's nice to see you, Ashley, returned from your Green Acres sort of outpost in the Hamptons. Yes, I have not really been spending any time in the city for the past six months and I am here now and it feels incredible to be back Michael you know there's no place like New York as everyone knows it's been wonderful to see in these last few days after Labor Day the city really picking up again and the energy returning and sort of the blood rushing back into the veins here yes I've been holding down the fort and I'm tired of opening up headlines from the New York Post and the New York Times with the verb flee in them so um, as I keep saying I'm so glad you're back Ashley I'm so glad you know many people are coming back for schools now I've enjoyed the city and the summer, as you've heard me talk about, it's cut a little bit of Paris as, as the kind of outdoor dining really gained ground. And we had a very mild, lovely summer. But I think if we can balance out and bring 25% inside, I think it's going to bring a lot more jobs back, a lot more sort of fun into the city. And, and uh, it's, it's, again, just a, a nice, uh, optimistic step forward, just like getting the kids back into school. And, and uh, I think step by step, we're going to get there. I've never been as happy to come anywhere as I felt today when I returned it to this office. Maybe you need to get your head checked if you're that happy. <laughs> Maybe. We work in the most beautiful office in New York City, I think, in a beautiful brownstone in Greenwich Village that Graydon Carter, our co-editor of Airmail, has decorated to perfection. And it's just such a delight to be in a space like this. It just feels really great. And I miss all the people that are in it. And hopefully, you know, it won't be soon, but one day everyone will be back here together, uh, you know, having a cocktail at 5 p.m. on a Friday, celebrating our issue close as we used to do. But for now, we're all here at least on this podcast with Morning Meeting, talking about the important news stories of the day. And the issue, this Saturday's issue. So actually, I know you have got a full plate. What's top of mind for you in the stories that we've got this week in this week's issue? This is such an unusual year for all of us, but it seems really strange to be back in the city after Labor Day and not to be thinking about New York Fashion Week. Uh, New York is essentially the only city right now that is having an almost entirely virtual season of shows. Jason Wu is actually the only designer who's doing anything in person this season here in New York. It's very bizarre. So we do have kind of a fashion-y issue for September 12th, which is today. Let's not say that. I think it's a fashionable issue too. It's a totally fashionable issue. And we have some spectacular writers and spectacular stories in it. So first up is Amy Fine Collins has done a Q&A with Pierre Cardin. Now, Monsieur Cardin is 98 years old. And he is still has plenty to say. And there's a new documentary about his life that just came out recently. And Pierre Cardin doesn't really get as much credit as, as he deserves for being really the first to license products all over the world. And he's done, over the course of his career, such an incredible job of being not only a visionary designer, but an exemplary business person who has managed to change the way that people dress on just a massive scale. And so Amy gets into that a little bit in her piece. But she also talks to him about the more pressing issues of 
of the day, like Black Lives Matter, uh, coronavirus, you know, all the social changes that we're seeing as a result of this. It's a fascinating read. Yeah, you know what I love? I mean, you're right. I think Cardando's not, he's not well known enough. I mean, and yet he was so, I mean, one of the great modernists of fashion in the 60s and even in the 70s and sort of like his silhouettes and what he'd done. I wish more people saw it because it was, you know, he was really, in some ways, clothes have regressed, you know, and style have regressed and sort of gotten safe again. But I think he'd be, he's a very inspiring designer. I think what's amazing about him, my favorite little sort of small anecdote, you, many of you know the storied restaurant in Paris, Maxime's, over there near the Place Vendôme, which many people don't know it exists because in 1981, Pierre Cardin, who used to eat there all the time, was approached by the owners who were about to sell it to uh, some investors from uh, Asia. And they were very upset about this because they wanted it to remain in French hands. And Cardin was eating there that night. And I don't know if it was, he had a little too much wine, just feeling very also just in love with his restaurant. He agreed to sort of buy it and finance it. So it's still owned by him. As far as I know, you know, it's, it's if you've ever seen the movie Gigi with Maurice Chevalier and Leslie Caron, great scenes there. But anyway, you're right. He's He also talked about his thing with licensing, which used to be such a dirty word. And now, of course, everyone and everything is a brand. I mean, he was almost visionary in sort of getting us to that point as well. By his own estimation, over the course of his career, he's employed about 90,000 people in 63 countries. If you were to ask my dad who Pierre Cardin is, he would say, you know, the guy who sells ties. But he's had his brand on everything from ball gowns to javelins and electric razors, about 800 products in total. It's quite a legacy and quite an enterprise. I remember back in the day when it was like it was seen as so cheap to license yourself and houses like Gucci licensed the hell out of themselves in the 70s and then had to sort of buy all that back and it was seen as sort of like somehow depleting the, the luster of the brand. But it's in a world now when everyone's doing collabs and tie up and all these things. He was sort of testing those waters and very, very um, avant-garde out there on that. So interesting and great, great piece by Amy Fine Collins. Yeah, he was actually the first couturier to sell ready-to-wear in 1959 and he was expelled from the Chambre Syndicale de Couture because of that. Okay. So Pierre Cardin was also the first civilian who was allowed to walk in Buzz Aldrin's NASA moon suit. So uh, he, <laughs> he's had quite a storied career. But is he the first civilian to moonwalk in Michael Jackson's loafers? That's what I'd like to know. <laughs> who had Probably that? Not. Okay. <laughs> That's great. Anyway, what else you got in style, Ashley? Well, I've got one more fashion story for you, Michael. So as we are staring down the face of a September that is unlike any the fashion industry has seen in recent memory, we enlisted Andre Leontali, a friend of Airmail, to write a piece about um, a September without New York fashion. And so he sort of, you know, he's been going to the shows for over 30 years. And so we asked him to look back at some of the more memorable shows that he's seen and then to weigh in on how he thinks COVID-19 and the pandemic effect will be uh, changing the face of New York Fashion Week. So he has a very interesting take on that. Michael, what did you think of the piece? I thought it was great. I can't wait to talk to Andre because the man doesn't just dish, he shovels. So let's see what he has to say. Everyone, welcome Andre Leontali. So, Andre, thanks again for the great piece that we had in Airmail this week. Thank you for letting me. I'm pleasure to be joining you. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about, do you remember your first season at the shows? When was it? What was it like? How was that September different from the? Well, my first thing at the fashion shows in New York were actually was when I came to New York in 1974 in October. I think I went to a couple of fashion events. And then I started working for Andy Warhol in January of that year, 1975. And so I would have gone to the collections in New York in February. 
So I don't remember vaguely a specific show, but I remember going with Andy. I was working at Andy as a receptionist. I was a receptionist and took messages for people like Fran Leibowitz, who's a great friend, and she still is. And Scathering Guinness. Andy took people out together. When you worked for Andy, you didn't make a lot of money, but you got the perks of going with Andy to events like fashion shows. But I remember that my first fashion show probably was a Bill Blast fashion show. And those shows in those days were not as exciting as they were before the pandemic. I mean, it was strict bread and butter business. You went to a ballroom at the Hotel Pierre. There was a high-raised runway. A catwalk was elevated above the audience. You were seated on little gold ballroom chairs. And the show just began with a little bit of tape music, perhaps not so concentrated on special music or thematic music. And the models just came forth, back and forth, back and forth. But I remember my first extraordinary fashion show ever was in Paris, France. And I will never forget that. And that was the Karl Lagerfeld collection for Chloe. Wow. And that had to have been after 1975 because I met Karl in May of 75. So I somehow got myself to Paris and went to his Chloe fashion show. And that was just exquisite, extraordinary. And that, those were the days when Karl Lagerfeld, who was already a great emerging world-class designer, would have fashion shows and he would cast the models from, through his friends. In other words, Pat Cleveland would be his friend. He'd have a, a girl named Oya, who's now cleaning buildings in Berlin. She's a custodial janitor, but she was one of Carl's greatest muses. And Donna Jordan and people like that. And Carl would cast the models. He would have the models meet at the show with the venue. And they wouldn't have a rehearsal or lineup. Carl would just be in the back with racks of clothes and would say to the models, pick whatever you want to wear. You go through the racks and pick what you like to wear. And that's how the show was. And then the show would come out and there would be these extraordinary uh, looks. And the one thing that I remember about one of Carl's first shows is he would give the girls the clothes after they walked. They didn't make a lot of money. He says, here, take this home. Take this with you. Take this home. Take this home. So what they wore, they got as payment. But one of the great things about the first show was that Carl had a, a friend, a stylist, before the word stylist came to be, named Patrick Cocard. He still is alive. Patrick is a great antiques expert. But in those days, he was working for French Vogue, and he would assist Carl. And one of the things he came up was with, there would be these extraordinary crepe de chine dresses for $900, the finest fabric in the world. And Patrick decided to style the show with the girls wearing tennis shoes. And that was a breakthrough moment. I bet. Yeah. So what's it like for you as we're entering into this strange pandemic of 2020 with no fashion shows on the horizon for us, at least in New York? Uh, you have to find ways to exist that are really rare and special. That's a groan, I think, that should be a, a soundbite for everyone's mood for the last um, this is like, that's the, that's the groan that encapsulates everyone's frustration. I love it. Well, I love that beautiful bird behind you. Thank you. The bird and the black and white silhouetted bird. Well, how do I cope with it? And what do I feel like? I don't feel moored. I don't feel moored because I don't know where we're going. You know, in this pandemic, uh, sheltering in, I've lost tracks of the day. Sometimes I wake up and I say, is it Sunday? Or is this Thursday? What day of the week is this? But You know um, what else, Andre? That's just like fashion week. You lose time of days. You lose the time of the day. You lose where you are. You lose your sense of timing. I don't know where we're going. I do think that people are going to be very inventive with the digital platforms. As you know, Tom Ford has said to me that he's going to put his collection up on his official website and that he's going to buy his collection for his store. And he's going to have third-party consumers like the celebrities. They're going to have virtual parties and sell the clothes to this apparently the celebrities like Renee Zellweger and Tom Hanks' wife. What's her name? Rita Wilson. Rita Wilson, one of his great customers. I don't know where we're going, but apparently no one has sent me anything about New York Fashion Week. No one has sent me, we're having a party in terms, we're replacing a fashion show with a cocktail party or virtual Zoom. No one has sent me anything. But I know that someone is coming up with great ideas like Mark Jacobs. Now, Mark Jacobs is already a fashion show to himself. If 
you go into his Instagram account, he is every day posting himself having fun in his house, in his life, mixing up his clothes with Mickey Moto pearls, Hermes slides, mini skirts. You know, he's got a whole new gender thing going and he's been doing it for a while. That in itself is a fashion show. I think that the whole future of the world of fashion and style and the world of communication is going to be connected to this whole system of Zooming. And let me ask you something, as the three of us have all been to shows, and what I love about your piece this week, you talk about kind of, okay, like the buyers won't be there as much anymore, blah, blah, blah. But in you pull back in the macro view and what people who don't go to fashion shows think they are and what they accomplish, and then what really, like, and you have to explain to them, no, no, actually a lot of work gets done. They're very important. In this moment, what would you say to someone, the average a person who's been to fashion, like, this is why fashion shows, even as they evolve, still need to happen? What is the important? of them? The importance of a fashion show is to, A, present your offerings for the season. I do not think that the, the audience has to be full of celebrities. I think that when fashion was fashion, it, it was really even better. I think fashion became gorged with the surfet of celebrity focus, front row celebrities flown in, etc., etc. You know, fashion was fun when it was very insulated, when, you know, you went to a show because you had a purpose there. And the reason a fashion show happens is a buyer needs to see what's happening, he needs to make notes for this future. He needs to go. He has this offering. He can then go and have a meeting in a showroom and downsize his buying. I think a fashion show serves many purposes. Most importantly, in today's world, in today's world of information, that the fashion show became just a format to have almost like a circus event. Once the fashion show is over, you put it on your platform, your digital platform, and it's done. People are bored with it and they move on to the next thing so quickly. I think fashion is a very beautiful thing to appreciate. And when back in the day when Carl Lagerfeld had those small shows at Chloe, or when Saint Laurent had these great shows, these Revgo shows, the celebrities were on the runway. The celebrities were not on the front row. People on the front row were the people, the editors, and the retailers. There was a whole um, hierarchy. Retailers sat in a certain section, Neiman Marcus, Bergdorf Goodman, Saks Fifth Avenue, John Fairchild, the king of women's wear daily publishing, this young, Vogue and Harper's Bazaar sat in another section. And these were the celebrities and the heroes of fashion. But today, it doesn't matter if you're going to look at a Zoom, a website of a collection. Right, that's my point. I guess my question is like, you know, that's the evolution of fashion right now. You want to be everywhere at all times. But you're right, there is there is still that intimate theatrical moment that happened under the tents before when everyone was watching the runway rather than looking at the front row, right? And I feel like there's going to be a hunger for a return to those experiences again when we come out of this, don't you think? I don't think so. I think that we're going to get used to the new norm, whatever the new norm is. I think that gone is the gone of those days of the mega fashion show. Actually, it became too much. It became overkill. I mean, you know, the House of Chanel would spend average of $4 million on a runway show for the ready to wear. I mean, those shows became... So, so those like the, the big Grand Palais show, you don't see that going on anymore? No, no. I see people returning to something more intimate and small, more personal, the way you relate to an Instagram post of Mark Jacobs with a Mickey Moto Pearl necklace on one day and a pair of gold platform sandals in bed another day with pedicure toenails and red gloss fingernail polish. So I, That was me this morning. Yeah, look at you. You look at you. You look great. You got a white shirt on and you got you look great and love your hair. So, you know, this is intimacy. People need to come down to a more quiet way because this is a very serious year. We've got the pandemic. We've got the economic crisis. We've got Black Lives Matter. We don't know where we're going to end up. And November 3rd is a pivotal point. November 3rd is a very pivotal point. You've got to get out there and vote. But we don't know where it's going. We don't know what's going to happen. People are worried about that. I read a story in the New York Times Sun Magazine on Sunday 
and I just read it yesterday morning about the hunger in America, food insecurity. They did a brilliant photo essay of people in across America. This photojournalist traveled three months. The food insecurity in this country. This should not be. Fashion insecurity, who cares? Fashion is not. And, and I remember one thing that Peggy Noonan wrote early in December. She said, I just have my washing wear. I stack it up on my windowsill so I'll know when I have it to change. You have to go back in your closet and get your favorite white shirt. You don't even want to buy anything new. I mean, I haven't even been to a store since February and I haven't, I don't go to stores, but I haven't had any interest to look at anything new. I wanted to buy something new and I canceled the appointment because I didn't want to go into the city. I live in, 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 in the suburbs. And the only thing new I have is a Tom Ford watch because there's a new collection of Tom Ford watches. I'm happy with the Tom Ford watch. I'm just living on my old stuff and I've got enough stuff. Andre, how do you think the fashion industry has responded to the Black Lives Matter movement? I think it's responded in a very positive way. I think that it's extraordinary that suddenly, and this is my personal experience and my personal point of view, I find that, I'll give you one instance, Condé Nast made all these public statements about they were intolerant and they had done things wrong. And now suddenly the floodgates are open and almost every Condé Nast magazine has a subject about Black Lives Matter or something related to it in their fall issues. And I think that it's going to be very positive for change. Sometimes it goes overboard. I think they might get a little bit overboard in their focus on it, but I'm very proud to see that they are trying to make change. And I think the fashion industry has responded to it in a great way. Would you comment at all on the September covers? Oh, sure, sure. Sure, sure. Uh, give me an example. What's on the September cover? Which ones? Well, we had, you know, because it was really difficult photographers and models to pair up and shoot, we've seen a lot of sort of unconventional covers, like paintings. Paintings, paintings. Yes. The paintings, the, the paintings are great. I think that's a very clever way to do it. I don't know if the September cover of Vogue is. I haven't seen covers. And, you know, that's another thing. I, in this whole pandemic of sitting down and sheltering in, I don't look at fashion that much anymore. I don't look at fashion magazines. I look at fashion through the New York Times when I look at the papers, but I don't follow fashion that much anymore. It doesn't matter. You know, I'm focused on being well, eating the right food, making sure my sheets. The other thing I did buy about one thing this summer that was very extraordinary to me, and it's the avocado mattress I bought an avocado mattress, if you know what that is. <laughs> and I was, I was looking for an avocado, how to cut an avocado. <laughs> I wanted to know how to cut it properly. And I came across avocado mattress. I thought, what is this? And I needed a new mattress. I went to Hoboken, New Jersey, and it's the best experience of my whole summer. I drove to Hoboken and bought myself an avocado mattress. And it took five weeks to get here with the sheets and the pillowcases and ah, but it was worth it. And that's what my focus is. And my focus is on just being well and just status quo and living well and, and trying to be healthy and read books. And we enjoyed reading so much about them in your memoir, Chiffon Trenches, that came earlier this year. How's life changed for you since that came out? Oh, it's fabulous. I, I must say, Ashley, it's been wonderful. Thank you for that question. It's a very wonderful question. I, I love the piece that Alexander Schulman wrote for, for Airmail. I thought that was wonderful. I've had wonderful reviews up to current. Last week, I had a review from a professor at the University of Connecticut. I was impressed. I've done Zoom talks as of last Sunday with Australian Morning TV, which was hysterical, but so rewarding for the English version, which has come out in Australia. And I've had a good run, and he was on the bestseller list and I, it's the best thing I've ever done so far. It's the best thing I've ever done. And I have enough memories that I left out of the book to write another one. I have two quick questions based off of the book. Okay. And I know this has never happened to you, but maybe it has. You know the experience when you go to the fashion show and someone's sitting in your seat? <laughs> yeah. So do you have a standard phrase that you drop on them? How do you evict the seat crasher from your seat? 
a brilliant question. You're wonderful. I see that smile on your face. It's naughty, naughty. This is what I do. As I'm a towering inferno, I stand in front of them and I give them a look. And it's a silent look. And I raise my shoulders and arch myself. Whatever I'm wearing, I arch my accessories or my man bag or something. <laughs> and I stand there and look at them. And it, it, just the look makes them get up. Or the question, what did I, and then I go, and if they don't get up, then I go for some usher or some person that's working for the company. I don't say to the person, you're in my seat. I run and get someone who's done the seat planning from the company and make them get the person out of the seat. As you would do on an airlines. You don't want to have an escalated thing, a scene. You don't want to be out there screaming, you want to get out of my seat. You go get someone and you say, oh, this person's in my seat. Love it. Okay, my second question. Been reading a lot lately about lockdown style and the rise of the caftan. Do you have envy for all these fashion? biters who are taking your style or do you applaud it i applaud it and you know what tom ford just sent to me the email the other day saying he makes a lot of my caftans and he says oh it's so hot here in in la it's over 100 degrees and i'm just sitting i, I walk around in caftans all day and and he makes my caftans now he's wearing them and i said send me the three like you've got caftan it's so comfortable and i've been wearing the same caftans that i had i would wear to a fashion show in the lockdown my style has not changed Wonderful. Great. I think we're set, Andre. Thank you so Andre, very much. Thank you. Thank you, Ashley. Thanks, Andre. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. Have a good day. Thank you. Bye. Thanks. We'll talk soon about your story. All right, Michael, now that we've dealt with fashion, should we move on to sex? Yeah, okay. This is a little segment we call the hot trend of the week, which some of the youngs may know, some may not, but it is about, you know, here's everything old is new again. You know what's new again? It's no longer sexting. It's talking dirty on an actual phone. And you can lay it to COVID or anything else, but it's actually, if you've sort of noticed, there's been a sort of small resurgence happening in pop culture. There was a back in succession. There was that exchange between Jerry and Roman in season two. There's a new show coming out on Netflix, Emily in Paris, where there's a phone sex scene. Even Goop is now dishing out tips on how to get, as they say, freaky on the phone. But it makes me laugh because, you know, you've read so much about uh, millennials and Gen Z don't even like to text. They don't even like, they don't, they don't like to be on the phone. They only like to text. But now it seems that everyone's going back to it because it involves, you know, in these isolated days. And to be clear, this is not about live streaming yourself or anything. It's simply listening. And what I love about that is it's the old school seduction is that Tom Jones pour honey in her ear and and seduce her just through your voice and and through the words you're going to say. So I think it's a great piece. It's, you know, but like everything these days, somehow someone has somehow found a way to monetize it, including a, um, a woman named Cindy Green, who set up her own phone sex training service five years ago. So she's she's happy to sort of coach you if you're new, like everybody, if, if the millennials, like they need, you know, some coaching, they don't just know how to start talking dirty to someone one because they only know how to send dick pics or other things. Sorry, mom, for you to hear me say that. But, um, <laughs> screenshots, but it, it's time you learn to start talking dirty or as I call it, the fine art of, of speaking seductively. So it's a very fun piece this week by Hannah Evans. I don't know, maybe we should even have her come on and read it to you and that could really be dirty, but it's, it's a great piece. Michael, maybe on the next episode, you can try out your phone sex techniques for our audience. What do you think? Um, sure. <laughs> I'll get a. I'll just get a release from Brooke, my wife, and uh, it's all for work. Yeah, but uh, I'll talk to Brooke about it. She'll totally maybe understand. Maybe we could do a live call-in show. You know, we're just we'll see what happens. We're listening. I recently rewatched Sleepless in Seattle with my son, who's seven years old, because I wanted to show how capable and smart this eight-year-old kid in the movie was. <laughs> and it reminded me of Delilah. Remember? Yeah. I, I don't know if it's actually Delilah that they have that who has the call-in radio show. Talk about a voice that's like pouring honey in the ear. 
Wow. Yeah, for sure. That's fun. And how did your son take it? He really loved the movie. But like, who doesn't like Nora Ephron? Honestly, you could show it to like a baby and it would be a big hit. Another story I want to talk about this week, talking about how things have changed or what's evolving. A very short piece, but I think it's a very cool piece. Like my headline for this is changing planes. Or as I say, like a lot's changed while you were at home. And it's particularly, there's a very cool story out of Europe where there was a, uh, a, a Deaf Technology University in the Netherlands has partnered with Airbus and KLM, and they've come up with the next generation of plane. Like the, I don't know if you've seen like the big 747s and the Airbuses, probably going to get a lot of them retired because in the near term, not a lot of people flying big planes, 500 people getting on a plane right now, but they've got what's now being designed as the Flying V. And if you go on the site, this go on the issue this week, you'll see it is a, um, basically looks like a flying wing where the passengers sit in the wing and uses 20% less fuel than the Airbus A3500 but carries a similar number of passengers. So it's in a prototype stage right now. I think it's super cool. And, you know, look, we're all going to be flying soon. I know more and more people are getting out there. And best thing of all, it's also good for the environment. It uses less fuel. So very cool story in this week's issue. Where are you flying, Michael? Where am I flying? Nowhere immediately. How about you? Me neither. I haven't actually, you know, I do have travel plans on the calendar for next summer. Even if they get canceled, it just makes me feel better to know that they're there. You know, the day before like, I, we left this office, I was, Brooke and I were supposed to fly to Paris for a long weekend for my birthday. We then, of course, pushed it forward thinking like, let's just, so we, we got on the phone with the woman, like, and we pushed it to October thinking Paris in October, one of our favorite times, we'll go then. And of course, like just the other day, we're like, we need to move it again. So, but you know, it's, it's, so we're, we're now we're going to move it back. We're probably moving back to next March as well. So maybe a year from now, we'll be back there. But yeah, it's, you're right. I think it's, it's good for all of us. It's like now that summer is over and you need that next sort of um, escape to look forward to. I think you're wise to be booking something to have on your calendar and be anticipating. And that's what kind of gets us moving and, and thinking ahead, right? Yeah. I can't wait to go to London too, because I really want to see our newsstand in the flesh. I have not yet seen it. We opened up a, an airmail newsstand on Children's Street back in, I think it ended up opening in April finally, but it's just the coolest possible place. If you are, if any of you are listening from Europe, the UK, wherever you happen to be, check it out. It's on Children's Street, right across from the Children's Firehouse. And it's called Shriji News Agents. And you'll see like the big airmail logo on the awning. And it's just the most exquisitely curated selection of magazines, newspapers, cigarettes, gum, candy, all that good stuff, coffee, pastries. And then in the back, there's fantastic little design slash furniture slash curio shop that's curated by Laura de Gunsberg, one of our editors at large. And it's called the Artichoke London. And it's all in one just spectacular looking spot on Children's Street. So I cannot wait to get there. I think that actually is going to be the first trip on my list as soon as I can get on the plane. Nice. You're reminding me, speaking of magazines and newsstands, of a super cool piece we have in the issue this week by Sam Kashner. It is called Black and White and Red All Over. And it is the sort of really very unknown story of how a comic book about Martin Luther King rallied 1960s civil rights fighters, including the great John Lewis. And this is a little known story, but Sam sort of found it and it's mesmerizing. The comic book was called Martin Luther King and the Montgomery Story. And it, it tells the story of King. It was a 16-page comic book. It was created in the late 50s, 1957 it came out. And it was drawn by the guy named Cy Berry who drew Charzan, Flash Gordon, and the Phantom. And it sold for 10 cents down in the South. And it 
circulated among black churches and other places. And it told the story of Dr. King and what he was doing in the civil rights movement, his biography. And it's sort of its subtitle was How 50,000 Negroes Found a New Way to End Racial Discrimination. And John Lewis told the, someone about this comic book and it had been forgotten. And so some people tracked it down. And Lewis, who was a very young man at the time, I think barely 18, talked about how when he saw it, it really inspired him. And what I love about the piece as well is it comes full circle for John Lewis. Many of you know he went on to write a couple of his own graphic novels for kids or wrote the stories from that were illustrated. And, you know, it's funny that these graphic novels are more popular than ever. Just uh, today, in fact, the uh, Central Park birder, who you may know is the black man who is watching birds in Central Park, he's now come out with a graphic novel, a comic book, talking about his experience. But John Lewis wrote one, and this is why this is such a beautiful story about the Martin Luther King comic book. He wrote a few, and in 2016, he won the National Book Award for the young people for young people's literature about the, the march across the Pettus Bridge and the, the the march in Montgomery. And so, but there's a, there's there's a beautiful moment which may, many of you may not know, but every year there's Comic Con where all the people get together and it's a lot of you know fantasy cosplaying. And but when Lewis went there the first year to promote the comic, he basically cosplayed um, at Comic Con in San Diego. He recreated what it was like to walk across the bridge at that time. 55 years ago in Selma. And he got a backpack, which he was wearing, filled it with what he wore that day, an apple, an orange, toothbrush and toothpaste, uh, just as he had in 1965. And then there are about a thousand people, mostly young kids, third graders from school in the area who linked arms with him and walked through the convention hall. So a very beautiful story about by Sam about the comic book and how graphic novels continue to inspire people. So please check it out this week. Michael, for those of us who are not as cool as you, can you tell us what cosplay is? That's almost like I think you're like trying to trap me and say, like, well, Ashley, when I've cosplayed, you no know, cosplay is sort of, you know, like you dress up in the costume of people. It's like you've seen people, they go to the Star Wars convention, right? And they dress with their favorite character and they're co-playing along with it, I believe is, is how it works, right? So it's about participation. You even see this in literature now where people will take a character and then they spend it forward, like the Broadway show Wicked, right? Which was taking, you know, the story of the Wicked Witch of the West and what happened to her in The Wizard of Oz and sort of so it's about paying homage or being inspired by these things so that's my loose definition of cosplay that gives me room to say i've never done cosplay now there's anything wrong with it but that's all i'm saying well michael why don't you come cosplay with me a little bit let's just take an imaginary trip to the left bank of paris shall we i would be delighted as since i haven't been able to get there all year where are we going well we have a very fascinating scandal in this week's edition of airmail would you call it the scandal of the week now that you mention it, I think I would. Or would you put a French twist on it with scandal of the week? Ah, c'est un scandale. I'm really practicing my college French here quite a bit today. <laughs> Sorry, Alessandra, if my pronunciation is off, it probably will be. This is a crazy one, right? This is my favorite kind of scandal because it involves politics, sex, adultery, and Carla Bruni. As we know, all roads in French scandal ultimately lead to Carla Bruni, or so it seems. And this story began long ago. She used to be coupled up with a man named Jean-Paul Anthovan who was a very well-respected French philosopher. And he had a handsome son named Raphael, who was also a French philosopher. And Raphael was married to Justine Lavie, who was the daughter of Béachel or Bernard-Henri Lavie, another famous French philosopher. So you have two couples, Jean-Paul and Carla Bruni, and Raphael and Justine. And Carla Bruni ended up leaving Jean-Paul for his son, Raphael, 
Inconveniently, Raphael was still married to Justine. Justine did end up getting a book out of this. Um, it was a thinly veiled memoir called Rien de Grave, which translates to nothing serious. And this was published in 2004, and it shocked the French literary establishment. And if you, I highly recommend reading it. It is a delight, and it is easy even for those of us with marginal knowledge of French. Is it really possible to shock the French literary establishment? I mean... Yeah, probably not. I mean, these, these are the are guys who brought us Matt's Neff, right? So, no. We ran a story about an airmail back a few months ago about a pedophile who was at the highest ranks of the French literary establishment, and like they covered for him. Everyone knew about it. So I'm a little skeptical, as we might say, okay? Okay, fine. You can be skeptical. Right. You know what? It will shock foreign observers of the French literary establishment. Yeah, those who might think it's like all academies are so, uh, you know, pure. I think it's uh, they all have their um, little uh, cobwebs in the corner. Well, there's still a fair amount of bad blood between the father and son, Anthoven. Raphael just wrote an autobiographical novel called Le Temps Gagné, Time Saved, and he talks in it about his sordid past. He disavows his father. He writes in detail about what he considers to be a traumatic and troubled childhood. And he's quite tough on his dad, Jean-Paul. So Jean-Paul has come out and through text message, cut off all contact with his son. And this is playing out, of course, in the newspapers and magazines in France right now. So Jean-Paul sent a a text message cutting off all communication with his son. And he said, I'm in mourning. My heart is broken. It's a terrible book for those like me and others who have loved Raphael and who find themselves drowning in an ocean of ingratitude. Uh, it's a 500 page book. And I think it's safe to say that everyone in the sixth arrondissement is reading it right now. Drowning in an ocean of ingratitude. That's another memoir title along with saggy knickers or whatever that other one was. <laughs> followed by drowning in an ocean of ingratitude. So, so you know, the only question is, is that like, for now, Carla Bruni is happily coupled with Sarkozy, but who's it going to be next? I mean, what's the next Carla Bruni scandal? She apparently has a new album coming out quite soon. Yeah, well, she's learned how to sort of like hopscotch along the flagstones across the river. So it's um, good for her. Yeah, she recorded an album in lockdown and it's called Little French Songs. Petit Chansons? <laughs> Something for probably. I don't even know if that's true. I speak taxi driver French, so I'm just making this shit up. <laughs> For those days, Michael, when you used to go to Fashion Week in Paris, uh-huh. we have Taxi Cab French, I have Restaurant Italian, so we're covered when uh, the shows do start up again. You know, my French gets better the, the more rosé I drink. Or- <laughs> I feel the same way about my Italian. Exactly. All right, Michael, before we go, is there anything at all you could possibly recommend? You know, I can't. I was just sitting here thinking, and I loved what you said, how you had your son watch Sleepless in Seattle and Nora Ephron, because kismet wise, and that is sort of almost in a Nora Ephron world. So Brooke and I spent a lovely weekend here in the city, Labor Day weekend. We were up in Central Park, beautiful crystal blue late summer day and walking through and everything was beautiful. We even saw Pale Mail, the, the great hawk, which I think you know. I thought Pale Mail died. No, Pale Mail was up in the tree. People were watching him. And I said to the woman, that's Pale Mail. She said, oh yeah, he's 20 years old. He's on his sixth mate. So everyone was there, like some bird watchers were watching him. And anyway, we walked home and that night we had dinner, had a great dinner in the city at Via Carota and then went home like, let's watch a movie. And I said, you know what? Let's watch Harry Met Sally. And I got to tell you, that movie 
movie. I have not seen it in its entirety, probably since it came out almost 30 years ago, more than 30 years ago now. But talk about if you are coming back to the city or any city right now after the summer, this is your love letter that will just make you fall in love with your city and what you, why you came here, especially New York and the New York character, the New York characters. It's a beautiful movie. Nora wrote it. Rob Reiner directed it. It's just, just fantastic. So many great lines. It's, uh, I can't recommend it, but sit down. And the amazing thing is, is there's something, it is 90 minutes. I mean, it is such an efficient story, but such a deep story. So treat yourself to that this weekend. Isn't it incredible, these comfort films and books that we come back to? Because coincidentally, I've been reading the most of Nora Ephron, which is a wonderful collection of her work, both her essays and heartburn and so many great pieces. There's something about these times that sort of call for her, her heady mix of urbanism, humor, savvy intelligence and, and like deep human connection. Yeah, yeah, there's so many just great neural lines in there, but it's a beautiful movie. It's so fun. You just sort of like laugh through the whole thing. For those film nuts out there, it's also, you realize it's a movie where, where she and Ryan are really upended convention. You know, it used to be the romantic comedy was boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl. You know, they sort of turned the, the it turned on its head now was boy meets girl, boy and girl don't get together, boy and girl don't get together, boy and girl don't get together, and then boy and girl will they get together. And so it's it, that, that sort of tension and fun of it is, uh, creates all the humor. You're banging. Michael, it's because they're doing some construction apparently on 9th Street. So returning to the office, I suppose, does have its disadvantages, but I've never been so happy to hear construction noise. It's either that or one of our employees was locked in the wall and it's like trying to still tunnel out like a cask of Amontillado or something. But we'll Good see. point. I haven't seen Clementine lately. Clem? Exactly. Clem. <laughs> Great, Michael. Before we go, I do have one recommendation for you. What do you got? You and I love to eat lunch at Via Corota. We like the salad. We like every pasta. I'll order two pastas. You'll have two bites of mine. It's all good. But I am going to try to ask you, will you please join me for lunch at Estella at the Ring? Have you heard about this? I have heard about it. And it comes on the heels of the rebirth of outdoor dining, but because it's at the Rink at Rockefeller Center. But tell me more. Yes. So another ingenious use of public slash outdoor space is that the teams behind Estella and Frenchette, which are two of the hottest restaurants in lower Manhattan, have taken over the ice skating rink at Rockefeller Plaza. And they've opened up this fantastic picnic style set up. So you can get these picnic lunches to go and eat them at beautiful wooden tables in the middle of the skating rink. Talk about a quintessential New York experience. This is a reward for those of us that are here right now. So everyone go and enjoy. You can book it on Resi and it is only for weekends in September. So get to it. Wow. Only for weekends in September. Hopefully it will extend to October, but TBD. All right, Ashley, I think that's it for today, the 12th of September. So thank you for joining us. I'm Michael Haney, one of the deputy editors of Airmail, and this is my colleague, Ashley Baker. Ashley, will you read us out, as they say? Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alessandra Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Nathan King and Chris Garrett. Our CMO is Emily Davis. Special thanks to Joe Perzicki. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please do subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which is updated every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We'll be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. And thank you again for joining us. Morning Meeting's music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. And our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Have a wonderful day and we'll see you next Saturday for the next edition of Morning Meeting.